On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Good morning. Would it be fair to say that 2021 was a year marked by fear for a lot of people? A fear of getting COVID, a fear of government control and liberties being restrained, a fear of not seeing loved ones or of losing loved ones, a fear of not getting to do the things that we want to do in the way that we want to do them and with whom we want to do them I regularly read headlines and skim articles from a prominent news company that uses bright red as their prominent brand color. I'll let you figure out which one that is. Um, Every article on the latest COVID-19 news is in big, bold letters, and almost without exception, I have a physiological response, a reaction to that. I get anxious, I get stressed, and you already know this, but, but fear is a powerful force. And in a country, in a world riddled by fear, I fear that we often fail to receive the most transformative news for what it is, the good news of peace through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we all take our our first steps into this new year, into 2022, my encouragement for us is let's not look horizontally for what we can only find vertically. If you're a Christian, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will use this passage of his word today to encourage your hearts as you hold fast to Jesus this year. And if you're not a Christian, you wouldn't say that you're following Jesus with your life. My prayer is that you will discover peace, this peace from God that you haven't found anywhere else. This message of peace has the power to transform your life, your relationships, and in the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan, the world. So lean in and let's discover and deepen our understanding of this peace that is found in God. Our text today communicates two powerful things that I'm going to summarize in one sentence, and you can see it projected on the screen. Jesus fills fearful hearts with the peace of his presence, and his gospel of forgiveness is now the message we proclaim. That's the main idea and what we'll uncover in our passage today. I enjoy reading the four Gospels about Jesus' life because they follow a story uh, along with the various teachings and discourses throughout his ministry. And I, I don't know about you, but stories seem to help deepen the essence of what might otherwise be communicated in a traditional teaching setting. And we have such a story in front of us today. Last Sunday, we explored the glory of the resurrection, the news that the tomb is empty. Jesus had been publicly executed and buried on Friday, but in the words of S.M. Lockridge, 
It's only Friday and Sunday's a coming. And Sunday came and the tomb is empty. What happened to Jesus? Well, as Mary announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And this brings us to the setting of our story. If you imagine this playing out on the silver screen, we followed Peter and John as they ran to the tomb. And then we've lingered with Mary as Peter and John returned to their homes. But in this next scene in the gospel of John, we fast forward to the evening. The disciples gather together in a room. The sun has set, but the risen sun has something more to do this Easter Sunday. So now we arrive at the first of two points from our text. Number one, when he walks into the room, Jesus fills fearful hearts with the peace of his presence. Look at verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Let's pause there. We begin with the setting. Fearful hearts in a room locked from the inside. Why were Jesus' followers afraid? Think about it. They've been afraid before. There was the night when they were in the boat out on the sea, and they were afraid. There was the night in the garden when Jesus was taken by a mob. Once they were afraid because of a storm that threatened their lives. Once they were afraid because a mob had taken their leader who they thought was their Messiah. But why are they afraid now? Well, verse 19 gives us the reason. For fear of the Jews. Consider how bent out of shape the Jewish leaders were at the person and ministry of Jesus. All the way back in John 5, 16 verse 8 through 18, we read, this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. He was questioned by the Sadducees. He was ridiculed by the Pharisees. In legal terms, Jesus experienced a miscarriage of justice in a sham trial. And although he was never convicted, he was sentenced to death. He was beaten, mocked, whipped, nailed, and pierced. The Jewish leaders had had enough with Jesus what could possibly go wrong now that he was dead? Well, they supposed. What if his followers were to steal his body and suggest that he did the unthinkable, that he rose from the grave? That would cause even more of a disruption this festival week in Jerusalem. And so what could they do to prevent such a thing? Matthew gives us that explanation in Matthew 27, verses 62 through 66. The next day, that is... After the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gather before Pilate. So Jesus is dead and he's in the tomb and they come before Pilate and they say, sir, we remember how that imposter, while he was still alive, I imagine they were snickering, after three days said, I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal it away and tell the people that he is risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go 
Make it as secure as you can. And so they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So come Sunday morning, it would not take long for these leaders to find out about the open tomb. The news came quick to the Jewish leaders. The story continues in the next chapter of Matthew, chapter 28, verses 11 through 15. So some of the guards went to the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. And when the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say that his disciples came in the night and stole away his body while we were asleep. And if this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took this money and did what was instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Why do I belabor this? Well, the disciples feared the wrath of the Jewish leaders. They'd they'd come for Jesus, so surely now they would come for Jesus' disciples too. And what of Mary's testimony that she had seen the Lord? And what of Peter and John's own sight of an empty tomb and the folded cloths? What are the disciples to make of these things? In Luke's gospel, we're told that Mary and the other women's words seemed to the disciples at first an idle tale. They didn't believe them. But notice that unlike the night when Jesus was betrayed, the disciples are not scattered, but gathered together. God was no doubt preparing their hearts for exponential growth in faith as Jesus enters the room. And that's true of your life and mine. God shows up in the darkest of places, the most Fearful of times. And when God walks into the room, everything changes. Look at the second half of verse 19. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Peace be with you would have been a common greeting, no doubt. But what a powerful life altering message When it's spoken by the risen Christ, Emmanuel, who came and stood and said, peace be with you. How many of us need that peace? How many of us long for it? How many of us perhaps strive to achieve it? Many of us look for it in the things of this world, in fleeting pleasures, in coping mechanisms and control. But where do we find the provision of this peace? Paul writes of Jesus in Ephesians 2.14, for he himself is our peace. Jesus isn't St. Nicholas giving you a shiny new toy on Christmas Day to make you feel happy. Jesus isn't some distant relative writing a card wishing that somehow you'll experience peace and joy this new year. No, no. Jesus is God incarnate telling his disciples and telling us that the power of wicked men, the power of sin, the power of death itself could not restrain him. He lives. And because he lives, his peace is here to stay. His peace is here and now for you. That's the power of his presence. And when Jesus walks into the room, everything changes. And the disciples, they marveled at this. They were filled with joy. Verse 20 says the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. (laughs) Understatement? Verse 20 also tells us that he showed them his hands and his side. And this, this is no insignificant thing. 
Listen, the gospel that we believe necessarily includes the bodily resurrection of a dead person. That's a big deal. And in all the years since this first Easter Sunday, there's been no lack of alternatives offered for the resurrection of Jesus, trying to explain how could this have come about. An article from March of 2021 compiled a top 10 theories of the empty tomb. And some are more preposterous than others that Jesus perhaps had a twin or that there was a mass hallucination, but others are seriously held by unbelieving people, many who you know, who have considered this incredible story. And they raise questions like, was Jesus' body stolen? Or did they visit the wrong tomb? Or was Jesus' identity mistaken? And my question is, what does verse 20 confirm for us? Listen up, Christian. God means to strengthen your faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ with these words. He showed them his hands and his side. No need for a top 10 theories list. Why? Make no mistake. What the disciples saw were scars. Scars in his hand, scars in his feet, a scar where the spear had been thrust into his side. And imagine what they would be thinking. It's real. He's real. He's alive. And the profound gladness and exceeding joy that their teacher, their friend, their Lord, their Messiah is with them. And this, this changes everything. And Jesus tells them as much as we come to the second of our two points this morning. Point number two, followers of Jesus are sent to share the gospel so others may receive forgiveness and know the peace of God in Christ. What organizes these two distinct movements in this passage is the repeated message from Jesus, peace be with you. So we see that in verse 19. We see it again in verse 21. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. Perhaps the disciples would have recalled the promise of the Holy Spirit by Jesus in John 14 when he said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Or perhaps they remembered his words in John 16 when Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Listen, in the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So peace, peace be with you is, is no longer a, a wish or even a promise. It's a provision. It's the provision of the presence of the risen savior. And here Jesus returns to this theme of faith that has marked his entire life and ministry, trusting the gracious will of his heavenly father. Jesus has been on mission this whole time, from cradle to grave. This is what his life has been about. From the promises of the prophets before Jesus' life, from the covenants with David, from the covenants with Abraham, from the first gospel proclaimed in Genesis 3.15 about that serpent crusher, from before the world was spoken to, into existence by God, the eternal son of God, was on mission to bring the peace of God to a world that had rejected God. 
a world riddled with fear and sin and death. And as he concludes his earthly ministry, Jesus commissions his followers to continue the mission of God. Look at verse 21. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. This was to fulfill John 17, 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. The disciples are sent. And followers of Jesus in every age since are sent. If you are a Christian, you are a sent one. And as the Father sends, so Jesus sends. And as Jesus was sent, now we are sent. Now we should ask, how in the world are we to fulfill such a glorious mission? The mission of God. Well, that's just it. The Apostle Paul, I think, guides us really well here in how to think about this mission. In 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power of God belongs to God and not to us. We are but jars of clay. We are vessels. We are messengers. Our mission is fulfilled through the power of the Holy Spirit transforming hearts and lives. And this is exactly what Jesus points to in verse 22. Look there. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. It would be a number of days yet before the momentous events at Pentecost, when, when the Holy Spirit would be fully poured out. But here Jesus literally breathes out these words, receive the Holy Spirit, and indicates that it is through his work, through the Spirit, that these sent ones will continue the mission. What an anticipation for Pentecost. Perhaps you notice that the mission itself, though, has not been clearly stated. Jesus says, I am sending you, but what is he sending us to do exactly? Well, keep reading and look at verse 23 with me. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they're forgiven. And if you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Notice how Jesus' message of peace is intrinsically connected to forgiveness. It's more than a peace that relieves fearful men in a locked room. It's a peace that transforms every person who accepts the forgiveness of God in Christ. So you might think, wait, <laughs> we have the authority to confer God's forgiveness and withhold his forgiveness from people? Well, let's think about that for a moment. Consider this story from earlier in Jesus' ministry recorded in Matthew 9. Some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now let's pause there. You probably noticed that he didn't heal the paralyzed man. He forgave him. The Jewish leaders noticed this too. And they got upset because he was inferring that he had the divine authority to forgive sins. So let's continue with the story. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? 
For which is easier to say, your, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins? He then said to the paralytic, rise, take up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. Jesus performed an incredible miracle here. One moment this man could not move his legs. The next moment he stood and went home. And without neglecting to marvel at this healing, what's the point of this passage? Jesus has the divine authority to forgive sin. So consider this first for yourself. In leading Kingsway's youth and parent ministry called Frontline, I've had the opportunity to ask a question of some of the high school and middle school students over the years. The question is, who is Jesus? I'm not looking for a theologically articulate answer. I'm looking for, where's your heart? Where's your relationship with the Lord? And students have shared a range of honest answers that serve as a window into their relationship or lack of relationship with God. And I'd like to humbly ask you to consider the same question. Who is Jesus? Who do you say that Jesus is? Is Jesus a good teacher for moral living? Is he a famous religious historical figure? Is he just a man? Is he dead? Ask yourself, who is Jesus? If Jesus is who he says he is, then this divine authority to forgive is eminently a part of his identity and mission. Consider the seven I am statements that we've come across in the book of John. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Why can Jesus forgive? Because God in Christ paid the price for our forgiveness. Isaiah 53 verse 5 describes how Jesus carried our sin for our atonement, our forgiveness, our redemption. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. Now this risen lamb, our savior and Lord, King Jesus says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This isn't some sort of flippant response like a distracted three-year-old attempting a half-hearted apology. Sorry. And neither is it to be used as some sort of power trip to forgive those who are in your good graces and to kick to the curb anyone who's on your bad side. That's not what Jesus is doing here. The power to forgive and withhold forgiveness is given by the one through whom that forgiveness has been earned. That forgiveness can be received. That forgiveness can be multiplied the world over. To articulate this further, consider the words of the late 17th century minister, Matthew Henry, who describes two ways that the apostles and ministers of Christ remit and retain sin. And both as having authority. One, by sound doctrine, and two, by strict discipline. He writes, by sound doctrine, they are commissioned to tell the world 
that salvation is to be had upon gospel terms and no other. And they shall find that God says amen to it, or so shall be their doom. By strict discipline, number two, applying the general rule of the gospel to particular persons whom you admit into communion with you, according to the rules of the gospel, God will admit into communion with himself and whom you cast out of communion as impenitent and obstinate in scandalous and infectious sin shall be bound over to the righteous judgment of God. Certainly the apostles had a unique position of authority in the formation of the early church. And the elders and pastors today carry on a particular responsibility in this regard. But we too have a responsibility, fellow Christian. We are sent to proclaim the gospel. And by God's grace, when someone has a genuine response to the gospel, we can confidently assure them that their sins are forgiven. God will say amen to it. And when someone to our bitter sorrow rejects Christ, we know in no uncertain terms that that person is not forgiven. We have all the reasons in the world to be eager to share the gospel, right? We have experienced the transforming forgiveness of his grace in Christ. We have been commissioned by God himself to carry this message of the gospel. We get to celebrate when fear-bound sinners meet with the one who is our peace. The list goes on. But if we're honest, a lot of us struggle to share the gospel. We fear that we will make people uncomfortable. We fear what people will think of us. We fear we might mess things up or make it sound confusing or not have an answer to their questions. And if I'm honest, that's me. When I'm on an airplane, I'd rather watch a movie or take a nap than attempt a gospel-driven conversation with the person sitting next to me, even before COVID concerns entered the picture. I'd rather talk to the friends I already know at church instead of walking up to the person who looks new and looks like they might be here and might be seeking the kind of hope and peace that I've found in Jesus. Maybe you'd rather not invite your neighbors over so that you could catch up on your favorite show, or maybe you'd rather not press the issue with a friend who already knows that you know that she doesn't take Jesus and Christianity seriously. And is it okay to take naps and watch that movie or that show or talk to friends on Sundays that you already know? Of course, there's a right place for those things, a proper place. But if you're like me, we often choose those things over the very mission that God has given us, that he's sent us out with. And so my encouragement for us is let's humbly follow the Holy Spirit's leading in this area. As he prompts us, he will be faithful to provide us the courage that we need to share the gospel right when we need it, right here, right now. In a time and place riddled with fear, fear within and fear without, we know that we can have peace with God in Christ. This peace transforms our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, our relationships throughout life and in the world. So remember, Christian, we have good news to share. 
We have good news for each other, news for our neighbors, for our coworkers, and for our kids. If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning or listening to this recording, I pray that you will discover what it means that there is peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. So let's begin this year by confessing or or telling to God, talking to God about our fear, talking to him about our pride, even our indifference or passivity. We will find that the gospel is real. Forgiveness is real. Jesus is alive and his presence is our peace. Our text gives us a clear view of God's mission for Christ and his mission for us. Jesus fills fearful hearts with the peace of his presence and his gospel of forgiveness is now the message we proclaim. Yesterday, I happened upon the lyrics to a song just as it was coming on a Spotify playlist that I'd been listening to. And I thought I'd read a few lines as we close. Perhaps you know it well. Let's cherish this good news this year. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Thy own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Let's pray. Jesus, I want to thank you for being on mission from before the world even came to be. And I thank you for continuing that mission through to the end. I thank you that you died for our sin, that you rose victoriously from the grave, and that you have now commissioned us to carry this good news message to our friends and family and to the world. God, I, I ask that you would humble our hearts, keep our hearts soft when we might be tempted to hide our sin. I pray that instead we would see that there is an abundant, ever-flowing gift of grace in the form of forgiveness in the gospel. I pray that you would help us to confess our fears this year and that we would trust your faithfulness to provide because your presence is with us. You go with us. By the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray that you would help us to see that your presence is our peace. Amen.